Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, Fianna Fáil spokesperson for the Environment, Climate Action and Biodiversity, TD Christopher O'Sullivan, shares his environmental journey. And it's not down to earth, but out to sea today as we explore the growing industry of offshore wind. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. It's time to head down to earth, and we'll begin with this. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with the Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig is helping me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi, Craig. The first big news story you've brought to me is a study published in the National Academy of Sciences Journal, and it's confirming something that I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago about me growing up on the banks of the Mississippi River. But this study is confirming that there are pharmaceuticals present in rivers all over the world, not just the Mississippi where I grew up. And this includes places like Iceland and Ethiopia and the Amazon. So what is going on here? Yes, it's absolutely astonishing, isn't it? And it is so funny, really, that you mentioned it as a sort of side comment just a couple of weeks ago, Carl. And then this study has come out this week, which is one of the most sort of authoritative and widespread sort of studies looking at pharmaceuticals in rivers around the world. It's looked at over a thousand test sites in more than 100 countries, and it found that overall, uh, more than a quarter of the 258 rivers sampled had what are known as active pharmaceutical ingredients present at a level deemed unsafe for aquatic organisms in them. And this is because of all the medicines that we're taking as humans, uh, actually, of course, they go through our bodies, <laughs> out the other end, and then into uh, our, our uh, water systems, into our rivers and so on. And of course, they have that effect on us as humans. That's why we take them as medicines. But of, it's easy to forget that, of course, they will then also have an effect on our aquatic life. And particularly if you're talking about, obviously, species that are so much smaller than humans, it takes a pretty small dose to make a difference. And what's been found is everything from high concentrations of lifestyle consumables like caffeine and nicotine and painkiller like paracetamol, as well as sort of uh, medicines to treat epilepsy and uh, cancer and uh, nerve pain and diabetes. So it's a real problem. Uh, and, you know, this is another form of pollution that's affecting our aquatic life. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the study was saying, you know, most studies looking at this issue have, have been done in places like North America and Europe and kind of developed and prosperous places. And this is the first study that's looked at over 100 countries. And they found that the chemicals were highest in, in poor countries that lacked wastewater treatment facilities, you know, places like Ethiopia, Nigeria. And, and that's where they saw the, the highest incidence. And it's not only an issue, as you mentioned, for the reproduction of fish and their development in aquatic uh, life, but also they were saying that they think it's going to make people more resistant to these medicines. So we're, we're making these people that are already struggling, that are in poorer countries, we're, we're making them you know, less able to deal with illnesses if they're resistant to these kind of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I think there's a real problem that the report has highlighted about the increased presence of antibiotics in our rivers. Now, everyone will know, of course, about this big concern about overuse of antibiotics uh, around the world and in, in medicine around the world and, and the problem that, that can lead to 
uh, more resistant bacteria, bacteria that evolves to be resistant to those antibiotics. And what this report is saying is if you get high quantities of antibiotics in our rivers, that creates almost like the perfect breeding ground for bacteria that are then resistant to those antibiotics. And then that means they're going to be less effective in the use of uh, in, in medicine. So this is a real global threat to the environment, but also a, a global threat to our health. And some of the most polluted sites, as you say, are in the sort of lower middle income countries uh, where there's been poor waste management and so on. But it's worth saying, even in the most uh, the, the richest countries, you know, it's not as if our water processing techniques are particularly good at pulling these out. Even the most modern water treatment plants find it difficult to pull out some pharmaceuticals. So it's a real issue. And we've got to try and think about what do we do to stop this at, at source? You know, and we all still we want to be taking medicines when we need medicines. But the fact is, we are taking more antibiotics globally as a population than we need to, and it's good for us. We probably do need tighter restrictions on the doses of some medicines, and actually, it probably would be good for our health and for the health of the environment to make some medicines sort of hard, not quite so easy to get hold of. And and there, if you really need them, of course. Uh, but only if you really need them. And I think that's, uh, but that's going to be a, a heck of a problem to try and solve. Yeah, so maybe cut back on that paracetamol and, and nicotine use too. I noticed another water-related story showed up in New Scientist this month, and it, and it also took that kind of global perspective on water. But this time they were looking at the topic of algae blooms. And so these, these algae blooms actually strangle other aquatic life in freshwater ecosystems by either blocking light or consuming all the oxygen in that river or lake. And this study was showing how the problem is occurring even more often in, in lakes and rivers across the world. So just how significant is the problem, Craig? Yes. Well, I mean, you and I, Carl, and many others would have followed this for years. And of course, algal blooms in our waterways and particularly in our, in our lakes is a real problem. It happens because of sort of as fertilizer runs off the land uh, and, and uh, leaves that sort of high concentrate of phosphates and so on in our waterways that then sort of uh, fertilizes if you like algal blooms it means they grow very fast and actually that sucks oxygen away from other aquatic life and actually can also if it gets really bad can cut out the light reaching the lower levels of lakes and so on and this has been known about for many years uh, but actually this study as you say is a really kind of uh, detailed study looking at, at over a quarter of a million freshwater lakes around the world would you believe and one of the things that it's found is the incidence of these algal blooms is increasing. So uh, it was algal blooms were detected in around 3.6% of these sort of lakes between the period of the 1980s to the 2000s, but that's now gone up to 5.2% uh, during the 2010s. And it's uh, thought that it's will have gone up a lot more again over the last decade. So again, this is a problem. And, and of course, the thing to think about here, this is all caused because of fertilizer, overuse of fertilizer. How do we make those fertilizers? Well, they're based on fossil fuels. Again, you know, the huge uh, use of fossil fuels in our agriculture is really what's sort of underpinning now this overuse of fertilizers, which then results uh, in, in problems of algal blooms in our waterways. So it's funny how all these issues that we're used to, Carla, are inextricably linked. And how much of this is a climate problem? Because I would think as, as water is getting warmer that you'd be getting more algae blooms too. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, certainly you'd expect great more algal blooms as water gets warmer. There's the other problem, of course, that if you get hot, dry summers, there's less water around. So actually, a lot of our waterways will be uh, reduced in the volume of water in them, which means 
these algal, algal blooms and pollution within them will end up more concentrated so they can have a bigger impact on the ecosystems as a whole. So again, it's a real problem that needs addressing. But you know, the solution to this ultimately is about us moving away from very heavily industrialized agriculture that is dependent on so many inputs, not least huge amount of those inputs based on fossil fuels, moving to much more kind of regenerative agriculture that works in harmony with nature and, and won't result in this kind of a runoff of these, what ends up being these toxic chemicals. Yeah, so less less chemical inputs in our food systems. Finally, Craig, we both found stories in The Guardian this week that appealed to the animal lover in both of us. And I was actually taken with a story about a Swedish firm deploying crows to pick up cigarette butts in Stockholm. And you actually found one about chimpanzees that you wanted to highlight. I, I've actually always had a thing about crows because my granny and Carrie used to take them in and rehabilitate them when they were injured and they were just such smart birds. So I found it fascinating that this company in Sweden is actually leveraging that intelligence to have these birds pick up cigarette butts and then put them in this little bespoke machine where they get food in return for depositing a cigarette butt. So how do you feel about animal labor, Craig? Yeah, I must admit, I think this is a fascinating story that crows are being trained to pick up cigarette butts. But I can't say it leaves me with a good taste in the mouth, actually, Carl. I, I, I think Nor it for them, is a I'm bit sure. weird. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a bit bizarre. Um, and I'm, you know, um, you know, it does feel rather odd to be getting crows trained to clear up our mess after us, not least cigarette butts. Wouldn't it be better not to just drop them in the first place, perhaps? Um, so I feel a bit weird about this one. But it does, of course, show just how incredibly clever uh, COVID's are, COVID being, uh, COVID, sorry, <laughs> we've heard too much of COVID the last couple of years, <laughs> but what, how clever these COVID's are, um, as, as magpies and crows and so on. And um, it's even estimated that in some ways, magpie, uh, crows and magpies are, they've got the same sort of level of intelligence in some respects as a seven-year-old, would you believe, wow. which I find quite extraordinary. <laughs> so they are clever birds for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to note that they, they take part on a voluntary basis. So they're not being forced in any way to do this. They just learn that if they do this, they can get a small amount of food. And it's being piloted so that this company is ma- trying to make sure that, you know, animal welfare stays a part of this. But actually what I found... No Crows were harmed. I know. Cigarette but butts, actually, yeah. if you look at the scale of the problem of cigarette butts, so in Sweden, more than a billion cigarette butts are left on the streets each year, and that represents 62% of all their litter. Uh, so they're spending 2 million euro a year on street cleaning, and you know, at least over half of it is going just to pick up cigarette butts. So this could save them 75% of that 2 million euro. That's a huge cost savings. And then I looked up the stats on Ireland in 2020. Our national litter pollution monitoring system said that just under a half Half of our litter is cigarette butts. So, you know, we could really use that cost-saving measure here too. And uh, and I know our crows are smart enough. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure your Irish crows are very smart <laughs> and very good at doing that for sure, Carla. Somebody um, needs to pilot this. But tell me, I think your story about chimpanzees is actually more impressive. So go ahead and tell us about well, that. Well, I, I don't know whether it's more impressive, but it, it makes me feel better, put it that way. Um, yeah, so... It, Quite astonishing story, I thought, and a lovely story is that a community of chimpanzees in Loango National Park in Gabon has been observed putting insects onto their open wounds and those of their offspring as well. So this is where they kind of collect an insect, they kind of put it in their mouth or in their lips and squash it a little bit, but then push it 
onto sort of open wounds uh, of the, their own, or indeed some of the mothers have been witnessed doing this for their uh, sons or daughters, as it were. And, you know, this is absolutely fascinating. It's kind of unclear. It's been observed now and filmed in the behavior of um, 20 to 30 ch ch chimps. So this has happened in a num number of cases. It's not entirely clear why it's happening. It could be that the chimps know of some amazing medicinal properties in those insects uh, that are good at trying to heal those cuts that the young chimps have on them. Or it could be, and I love this, Carl, it could be that essentially they're doing that thing that we've, we've all done as parents when you've got toddlers who've sort of banged their knee or something. It's not, they're not really hurt in any way, but you kind of say, oh, well, kiss it better or something, <laughs> rub it better. It's not really making any difference, but it just feels, feels better to do something. And so they take an insect and they sort of squash it into the, the cut or, or rub it on it. And I just think it, it just goes to highlight uh, they are so closely related to us. And it is just so fascinating to see from across the sort of primate world, if you like, um, these this animal behaviours, which just are, are so sort of evocative and, and we can relate to. In, a, in how we live our own lives and with our own families. Yeah, I think we do something similar here with nettles where we rub dock leaves on it. And I'm not actually sure if that has an effect. But they do say that insects could have some sort of anti-inflammatory substance. So when these chimpanzees are, are catching these insects in the air and squeezing them, and it seems to only be flying insects that they're looking at, so they're being quite specific about the insect they pick, that maybe it is having some effect and that maybe we should be studying this as a potential medicine for humans too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, there's so much about the natural world we still don't know. And, you know, that's why it's so essential that, of course, we're able to protect these places, protect these species and to be able to study them and learn from them, because, you know, there is still so much to learn. Well, it looks like we still have a lot to learn from other animals. Thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly news, Craig. After the Thanks, break Carla. Speak next week. Thanks a million. After the break, we'll find out how Ireland's big plans to develop offshore wind energy are progressing. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Um, and I'm not overstating when I say that I feel Ireland could become a global superpower in terms of renewable energy. Um, the potential for 30,000 megawatts of energy from floating offshore wind in particular, could lead to a situation where we're providing 2.5% of Europe's entire energy needs and 5% of, it, of its renewable energy needs. So not only are we helping Ireland reach its emissions targets and reduce emissions, we're actually helping it on a European scale as well. As well. And I think, I think that's forgotten. This is positive. This is a good news story in terms of reaching our global emissions and our climate action targets. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and that was Fianna Fáil TD Christopher O'Sullivan and Dahl Aaron recently talking about Ireland's plans for offshore wind. We'll be hearing about him in a little while as part of My Green Life. But first, as part of the Climate Action Plan, the Irish government has committed to the development of five gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2030. So to put that in perspective, it's enough electricity to power five million homes. How will we achieve that goal with less than eight years to get there? Well, I'll be joined in a moment by Noel Cuniff, the CEO of Irish Wind Energy Association, and Brian Fitzgerald, the Stakeholder Engagement Director of Simply Blue Group. But first, People Before Profit TD, Breed Smith. Breed, when the Climate Action Plan came out, you referred to it as regurgitated PR spin and said some, some of the timelines and target dates were vague and confusing. What are your thoughts on the government's targets for offshore wind energy now? 
I think offshore wind is hugely important and very central to our ambitions to, to, to deal with the climate action plan. And I also think that offshore wind will be a fantastic additive to um, helping to, to reduce the cost of energy to ordinary domestic consumers, which is really important when you look at the spiralling cost of living at the moment and how much the spiralling cost of energy is, is contributing to that. But I have a fundamental problem with the model, and I don't think there'll be anybody surprised when I say that I don't think that this should be a model that is based on competition and for-profit and private companies um, competing with each other to get a chunk of our natural resources offshore and onshore in order to produce an essential service. I think that's a disastrous policy. Um, and I have advocated from the beginning, in fact, going back to the last Oireachtas, I put in a motion into the climate action um, the climate action plan that we were designing at the time that the government should look at the possibility of building a state-owned, uh, run and not-for-profit renewable energy company that would deliver on scale and on time without the element of profit involved, the, 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 the level of renewables required for us to reach our targets and to fulfil the necessary power that's required in, in, in the country. And that's never been looked at. It's just dismissed as just, you know, old hat socialist crap. Um, but I think it's a, a very important fundamental way of approaching how we deal with climate change, how we deal with the um, issues that communities have, um, how we ensure that whatever renewable energy is produced and delivered, it's done so on time, but it's also for use of, uh, you know, society, schools, hospitals, transport, public transport, heating homes, etc., rather than delivering more and more uh, consumption for data centres and other forms of industry that are really superfluous to what we need to do during the climate emergency. So it sounds ideal to have a state-owned renewable energy company that can ensure that the needs of people and the environment are met. But that does take time. And you've acknowledged that we're in the middle of a, a climate emergency. So timing is of the essence. Is there not a way to do this to involve private companies who can maybe roll things out faster than than a state-owned company could and, and yet also create benefits to local communities and, and engage communities in a, in a way where, where that works at the same time? Well, I think when, I mean, it, we're always told that this takes time, that couldn't be done, this will take time. But those who say that need to prove that that is the case. I mean, back in the day when we had nothing in this country in terms of uh, economics or financial resources or uh, infrastructure, we were able to build a state-run, state-led, not-for-profit company called the ESB and do it very, very quickly and, uh, and deliver uh, electricity up and down the country on time and uh, on scale, without uh, extra cost or burden to ordinary people. In fact, before it was deregulated, VSP provided the cheapest electricity to the consumer in the whole of Europe. Now we have the most expensive. Yeah, we were great. We were great back then. But if you just look at how the ESB is rolling out electric vehicle chargers, I have no hope that they'd be able to roll out offshore wind. Is that not an issue? Maybe we've gotten worse in how we roll things out since then. Well, we're not looking at the same model today as we had then. The ESB is being deregulated and its objective is to make profit and to, to uh, ensure that it, it, it returns, you know, it, it, it's on a competitive market. So we're not looking at the same model. I just don't accept that um, creating state-led, state-funded models takes more time. 
In fact, there has been planning applications and permissions given for offshore wind for the last 20 years but haven't been delivered. Um, and, and that's to private companies. So the suggestion that the private operator does it better or quicker or more efficiently than one that would be in the interest of the population and the state and the people and that our natural resources would belong to us, uh, the suggestion, I don't think it holds up. The evidence isn't there. Thanks so much, Deputy Breed Smith. Noel, I'm, I'm curious uh, what your response is to Deputy Smith's uh, argument that we should have a fully state-owned renewable energy company that, that can ensure that people's needs and the environment's needs are met. So what, what's your thought on that? Sure. Um, so maybe firstly, just to say that ESB is a state company and they're also one of the country's largest owners of onshore wind firms at the moment. There's other state companies like Board Namona and uh, through a joint partnership, ESB and Quilcha have Future Energy Ireland, which are also leading uh, onshore wind development right now. ESB is a key player in the offshore sector. Uh, just this week, they've announced seven projects totaling 5,000 megawatts of capacity that's in various stages of development. So Irish state companies are absolutely involved in the wind energy sector and are in many cases the leaders in certain areas of the sector. Just to say then secondly that there's enormous amounts of Irish companies participating in progressing the offshore wind sector right now and the economic uh, and job opportunities for Ireland from this sector is only going to grow and grow over the coming years. Just in recent months we've had announcements for improvements to port facilities right across Ireland to support the development of offshore wind farms. We've had announcements in Arklow, in Wicklow, in Shannon Foynes, in Rossaville and this is really only the beginning. We estimate that there's about 4,000 jobs which will be created across Ireland over the next 10 years to in getting this sector off the ground. Um, as Breach acknowledged as well, we really need to decarbonise Ireland's energy supply as quickly as possible. And many of the projects off the coast at the moment have been years in development. So if it, if it were as Breach appears to be proposing to, to stop these projects, build a new state company from scratch, resource it, staff it up, and then let them start these projects right from the beginning, then I doubt we'd see a single offshore wind farm completed in the next 15 years. Unfortunately, we've less than a 50-50 chance, I'd say right now, of meeting our 2030 target of 5,000 megawatts of offshore wind. And many of the reasons for this is because of chronic under-resourcing in many of our state agencies and government departments in areas like Umbor Planola or National Parks and Wildlife Service, or even over on the grid development side where you've got AirGrid and ESP networks. Um, we really need to see these companies really resourced up to deliver on the huge opportunity that offshore wind offers for us as a country. Brian, some of your colleagues in the offshore wind sector have referred to Ireland's five gigawatt goal as actually unambitious compared to places like Scotland, where they have this new 15 gigawatt goal. So what do you think Ireland isn't getting right in this area? Okay, I think that's a very good uh, question. Uh, As you may know, I spent uh, 38 years in the Irish Navy. So the perspective I take on this is I put myself on the sea and I look back in on the island. And uh, I always question actually how many Irish people think that they are islanders. But if you were to think about this as an islander, you would look at it from the sea. And when you go out there, you realize something is that the the entirety of the fossil fuel type of uh, energy source uh, migrates east to west. It comes from uh, places like uh, uh, Russia uh, or comes by sea uh, from the Gulf. Um, And Ireland is possibly at the end of that pipeline. When it comes to renewable energy, Ireland is actually to the forefront of that entire pipeline because the wind comes from the sea and it comes in particularly in the Northeast Atlantic. And Ireland has shown through its research, uh, the air wind study, that we have potentially 50 gigawatts 
of offshore wind on our south coast alone. And we've 75 gigawatts potential off our west coast. So we actually are possibly best positioned in the entire world to capture wind energy. And the thing we need to do now is to recognize the resource that we have at our disposal and come up with a strategy, and I would say an enterprise or perhaps an industrialization strategy that doesn't look upon this as just um, solving an energy crisis, but looks upon it as Ireland's tremendous enterprise and industrial opportunity. And therefore, and Scotland has shown us just recently in terms of setting an ambition for their development of offshore wind way beyond their domestic needs. They're not constrained by things like their grid capacity. They are uh, absolutely ambitious to say to the world and to say to the foreign direct investors um, that in come and invest here. Now, Ireland has the opportunity to do that. And with that industrialization strategy, create the socioeconomic opportunities for all elements of society and particularly our coastal communities, a coexistence with our fisheries. Uh, our fishery community is, is on its knees in many ways. And this would breathe life into the periphery of this island uh, and perhaps be one of the most fantastic uh, commercial or sorry, socioeconomic opportunities the state has ever faced. So five gigawatts is enough to power five million homes. That's double the number of homes we have in Ireland. So that creates, uh, turns us into an energy exporter. But, you know, I'll be honest, while I love the idea of climate friendly energy, I also love looking out at an unspoiled ocean with no houses or signs of development or signs of humans. And we've had fisheries and tourism groups and ecologists and communities all raised concerns not only about that kind of nuisance visual impact on the landscape, but also the environmental damages that would come from any kind of development offshore. So do we really need twice the amount of offshore wind energy than we actually have homes in Ireland at the cost of ruining yet another landscape? Um, so, so just to try and answer that, Cara, um, if we can meet our target of 5,000 megawatts of offshore wind by 2030, that will supply around 30 to 40% of Ireland's overall electricity needs. So while we might only have 2 million homes in Ireland, we also have a lot of businesses. We have a lot of uh, transport. We've, we've uh, over the next 10 years, we'll be massively electrifying how we move in our lives, how we uh, get from A to B as we transition to electric vehicles how we heat our homes as we try to bring in more heat pumps into both the uh, domestic and residential and industrial sectors. So it really is important that we uh, develop this offshore wind energy to try and decarbonize the electricity sector because that's what's going to carry much of the burden over the next decade in terms of trying to decarbonize uh, Ireland as a country. Um, when we're looking for suitable locations to develop offshore wind farms or even onshore wind farms, absolutely a balance needs to be struck. So when a, a developer is looking at a suitable location, they'll consider things like water depths or seabed sediments, wind speeds, wave heights, as well as environmentally sensitive areas, visual impacts, things like fishing grounds and shipping routes also need to be considered. Um, so ensuring that all of these uh, components are taken into account and that the impact on the landscape and the seascape is is a crucial part of sustainable development. So all offshore wind projects are going to be required to demonstrate that they can either avoid or minimize or mitigate any significant negative impacts on both the seascape and the landscape through an environmental impact assessment. 
What's it's really it? important that the wind energy industry develops offshore winds in a way that's sensitive to our marine space and those that use it. What's your response to the fact that our, our distance from land here and on some of the development projects on the east coast of Ireland is going to be about six to seven kilometers from the shore compared to the EU average of around 43 kilometers? Yeah, so, so that's a simple factor of Ireland's geography. Um, unfortunately, in Ireland, uh, and Brian would know this well, I'm sure, uh, we have a very, uh, almost a cliff edge that's close to our shore when it comes to our seabed depth. So the majority, the overwhelming majority of wind farms that are currently developed in the world are what's called fixed bottom wind turbines, where they're um, placed into the water through a foundation. And we can use fixed bottom wind farms up to about a, a depth of 50 to 60 meters. And in Ireland, because of that cliff edge that we have off all of our coasts, that means that fixed bottom wind farms need to be developed relatively close to shore compared to other countries. There is a lot of countries in Europe where you can develop, say, fixed bottom wind farms, say, 50 or 60 or in some cases even 80 kilometers from shore. But all of them would have very shallow waters in the region of maybe 20 to 40 kilometers. So while uh, over this decade, fixed bottom wind farms will absolutely play the biggest role in hitting the five gigawatt target, we are also exploring the opportunity for floating wind farms, which can be deployed further out to water. And we definitely see them being a big part of uh, the, the future for Ireland, particularly as we get into the 2030s, but certainly um, we think one or two projects can certainly deliver for 2030 here also. Brian, you've, your group, Simply Blue Group, has been promoting uh, offshore floating wind farms. And one of the major obstacles, I think, to offshore wind energy in general in Ireland has been our marine planning rules. Now that we have a, a new national marine planning law, do you feel like this will move us in a positive direction when it comes to floating offshore wind? Uh, yes, I certainly do. And um, uh, beyond that, we'll say Cliff Edge that uh, Noel has spoken about, Ireland does have this other extraordinary uh, geographical feature, which is the continental shelf, uh, which many countries do not have, uh, for example, Portugal and north of Spain. Uh, and this is one of the finest assets and creates some of the finest, in fact, fishing grounds um, uh, in the world. Uh, and it is an area that's about 10 times the size of our landmass. So it is, it is probably one of the most valuable things that the Irish taxpayer actually owns. And what to do with it now is the, is the uh, is the great challenge and we need to get this right. So I have to say that uh, uh, our departmental work has really been tremendous. I mean, when you're in the middle of this and your head down, you feel a little frustrated. You'd like to see things moving faster. But when you stand back from it and look at the fact that Ireland has grasped this, we now have a Marine uh, Area Planning Act uh, in place. That is a game changer for all of us. Of course, we want things to be happening faster, but that's a matter of resources. And those departments absolutely need more resources so they can move them on. Um, but we also need to protect the environment as we're going there. So there is a need for um, Ireland to develop its uh, marine protection areas. Uh, of which we have to have up to 30% by, by 2030, and to come up with a, a policy that makes sure that we can uh, exploit the very important uh, wind energy opportunities, such as floating offshore wind, uh, to, to deliver on our climate action targets, because this is a climate crisis, and might I say a global crisis. And we have to remember one thing, I'll just make this point now, is that uh, if Ireland isn't ready for this, 
then the wherewithal to do it, which will be brought to us by the foreign direct investor who has the experience over many years, for example, we're in partnership with Shell, who have uh, who are able to build uh, offshore infrastructure such as oil and gas, and they bring all that expertise uh, to Ireland so that we can build these floating offshore wind farms and other technologies that are needed out there uh, to bring this power ashore. If Ireland isn't ready for this, then the foreign direct investor will go elsewhere because it's a global crisis and therefore the problem exists all over the planet. So Ireland cannot say to itself, well, look, we'll get ourselves ready and then we'll call upon the foreign direct investor when we're ready. That might well be too late. So therefore the global crisis is driving everything. That does not mean we should take shortcuts, but we do have to be very, very agile. And the setting up of our marine protection areas, which our environmentalists are very strong on, uh, and they are correct, uh, so that we meet our, our targets there and create a situation of coexistence where our fisher, fishing uh, industry can thrive, um, where our offshore renewable energy industry can thrive, and where our area is environmentally marine protected. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. My thanks to Noel Cunniff, Brian Fitzgerald, and of course, Deputy Breedsmith for setting us straight about offshore wind. Up next, TD Christopher O'Sullivan will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today to shape a better future for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, Cork Southwest TD, Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan joins us. Hi, Chris. Hey, Cara. Thanks for coming in. I think listeners will be really surprised to hear a Fianna Fáil TD talking about his green life. But you're the party spokesperson on environment, climate action and biodiversity. And I was really surprised to learn you're a keen birder and professional whale watcher. So I'm almost afraid to ask, what is birding? Birding, that's that's a a good question. I suppose there's a few different phrases around it. Uh, You have Birding, bird watching, and twitching, which I'll explain later. This all so. Sounds a little bit perverted. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. No, but, um, so birding is, is really is is uh, an activity whereby uh, people uh, flock to the coast in general, or it could be anywhere really, um, looking for uh, rare birds that may have been blown off course or may have, um, you know, ended up in this case in Ireland, um, for, for some reason or other. And, and birding is the act of looking for those birds. And I mentioned twitching. Uh, twitching is... Not twerking. <laughs> no. <laughs> twitching is... is um, so among the birding fraternity, you have uh, uh, listers. Um, and they will keep a list of all the birds that they see in Ireland. And you have some listers who have well over 400, uh, seen well over 400 birds. Um, and they will uh, pr- travel to any part of... Uh, the country at any time uh, they'll drop everything work um, family commitments whatever it is and they will head to the most remote islands like the Aran Islands or Cape Clear uh, to see this this rare bird and just tick it off their their list you know so that's uh, that's kind of birding and, and twitching explained so I hope it's like Pokemon basically it is a <laughs> Pokemon Go I think that's a really good description where you have kids going around looking for these really rare Pokemons and when they find it you know it's added to their list I guess so uh, twitching is is, uh, is similar to that I are, mean it's are you a twitcher? I'm, I, I consider myself I mean this is a big debate amongst uh, bird watchers is are you a birder or are you a twitcher? no <laughs> I would say first of all I'm a birder because like one of my favorite things to do and probably my favorite thing to do uh, absolutely is to in spring and autumn when migration happens you have spring migration and autumn migration um, to head to the coast places like in my case Mizzenhead um, which is a fantastic spot for finding rare birds Cape Clear Island uh, it's world famous in terms of um, birding 
and just to go and and you never know what the wind has uh, blown in literally so you can you end up on the tip of a headland and you might find a really rare um Nearctic species from North America uh, and that's what you're looking for you're looking for these really rare species and I mean it's kind of a sad story in many ways because particularly with those North American species when they've blown over here um, the chances are that they're not going to make it back so they kind of uh, end up um, in no man's land so to speak with for, no mate or anything yeah else. so they, they in in most cases with those smaller passerines um, you know those robin sized birds they don't usually make it back. But with wading species, it's different. So the waders that we see in our estuaries, um, like uh, dowagers and uh, lesser yellowlegs, just for example, they they do think that they sometimes do reorientate and make it back to... So you've America. been doing this how long? I've been doing it for 12 years now. Yeah. You know, I think I was... I was <laughs> I was in my 20s. Uh, I was single. I, I had a bit too much time in my hand, uh, hands and uh, I was looking for a hobby. Um and I tried rock fishing, which I failed miserably at. Um, I then tried surfing, which I was i was kind of, you know, I was getting okay at surfing. I was catching a few clean waves, as they say. And then I, I very nearly drowned. Uh, so that was the end of surfing. Um, and then actually it was, um, my sister passed away uh, around the same time. And it was that really cold, snowy winter. And, you know, I'd always been into nature and into wildlife. My mom would always feed, feed the birds in the garden. But... Um, my my father has horses, uh, and it was my job on this day. Um, it was uh, around the time that my 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 sister had passed away. It was, it was my job to feed uh, the horses who that he had grazing. So uh, I headed off, um, and it was the place was covered in snow. It was absolutely amazing. You can imagine the West Cork landscape covered in snow. And um, I would always bring a camera with me in case I saw anything. And as I was feeding the horses, I noticed these little brown birds sitting on the snow. Um, and as I looked closer, and I got pictures, and I zoomed in. It was this amazing looking exotic bird that I'd never laid eyes on before with a white stripe in its crown and this incredibly long bill. Um, and I thought, again, I thought I'd discover, discover, discovered some rare exotic species. It turns out it was a snipe. Um, so just seeing this stunning uh, creature uh, on my doorstep in West Cork, I realised there's more to this. And it just kind of, it it it. it really gathered from there that I got into birding and I started meeting other people who were in, in, uh, into birding and, you know, started, uh, joined a, a Twitter group where you'd be notified of these really rare species like uh, Woodchat Shrike is, 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 is one example. Um, this beautiful bird with a red head and a black back and they call them butcher birds because um, when they catch their, their prey, which are insects or even small lizards, they will impale them on uh, thorns or briars oh. and just kind of leave them there to kind of oh. dry out, I guess. Or, um, so it just, you're, my mind was blown. It opened up this whole new world. I bought a pair of binoculars. I bought a scope, um, which I'd recommend anyone to get. And it opened up this whole new world. And I've just uh, become addicted ever since and found myself driving the length of breath of Ireland to to see these uh, mad birds. Like um, I remember driving, like, when I really thought I'd lost it at this, at this stage, there was a, <laughs> A really stunning bird called a beater uh, that ended up on uh, the Belmullet Peninsula Mayo. So that's about seven hours from from where I live. And uh, as I began my drive and I got got past Galway, I realised I still had a further three hours to go to see this bird. And I, at that point, I questioned, um, you know, my sanity. Really, what am I doing? But <laughs> I saw the bird and everything was everything was rosy. So yeah, that gives a flavour. Okay, of... really unusual hobby. You also have an unusual kind of secondary profession. In addition to being a politician, you spend your summers working as a whale watching guide. So how does a law graduate and politician end up in that line of work? 
Yeah, well, I, I, just to clarify something, I know volunteer. So since becoming a, a TD, I, um, you know, I, I, I do this completely voluntary, and and I, I don't take a wage for it. But, um, that again, it, it was related to the birding. Um, I remember, uh, part of birding uh, is you're not just looking on in islands and and gardens. Uh, you can do a thing called sea watching, where you're looking at these amazing amazing passage of seabirds. Uh, off headlands, um, and I was doing that down in Gallyhead, uh, in near Clannacilty, Ross Carby, where I'm from. Um, and as I was doing it, I saw these two big blows um, come up from the water surface. And at that point, I was like, I, I've discovered whales in Ireland. You know, I'm the first person to ever see a, a whale. So obviously, I went about reporting it to the IWDG. I went on to find out that actually, fin whales, humpback whales, minke whales, they occur in quite large numbers uh, off the southwest coast in particular. Um, and I started doing these voluntary um, sea watches from Gallyhead and the Old Head of Kinsale where I document the whale species that I saw. And I mean, incredible numbers of, of, of um, fin and humpback whales that, you know, when you tell people, they don't believe you. Um, so later on, and this was about four or five years ago, um, there's a guy down in Cormac Sherry called Mark Gannon. He had a, an angling um, business. He had two boats that he'd bring people out, um, uh, I suppose, leisure angling. Um, and the demand for that had dropped off. So he was looking to expand into something else. Um, and he knew that I was into wildlife. So he approached me and we talked about, you know, what a success other operators in West Cork had been, the likes of Colin Barnes, who was a company called Cork uh, Whale Watch. Um, and for 20 years, this guy had been bringing people out to see fin whales and humpback whales. And again, little was known about this. So we decided to start doing that. And um, we put together a kind of a business model and three or four hour trips Um you know, not for the faint-hearted. You're going 10, um, 15 kilometres offshore. You're seasick. four-hour trip. The odd mm. person gets seasick. Now, the good thing about whale watching is, in general, you will, you'll only go out there if it's in calm conditions because it is incredibly tough to find these animals if uh, you're being covered in spray and, and uh, you know, there's waves and lots of white caps. So, in general, the conditions are good. But over the, the ne- over, since then, um, I mean... You, may, you might have seen some of the footage on either my own Twitter account or my Instagram account or on the Atlantic Whale and Wildlife Tours account. The activity that we've seen uh, has been amazing from fin whales, which are the second biggest animal to have ever roamed the planet at 27 metres. Uh, I mean, these are awesome creatures when you get uh, up close and personal with them. To probably the most iconic species that we get would be the humpback whale. Um, and the reason I think they're everybody's favourite is because of the range of behaviour they exhibit. So... They have the longest limb in the animal kingdom. Uh, their uh, pectoral fin is can grow to about five or six meters long, and we see them slapping that off the surface of the ocean. We see them do this activity called tail lobbing, where they swish their big uh, tail flukes around. Um, and I've been very lucky on the odd occasion to see a humpback whale fully breaching, and I, and I managed to get a, a shot um, of one of those uh, humpbacks, which got featured in a, in a couple of the uh, newspapers of uh, this humpback whale breaching. Uh, fully out of the water and just the the gasps of excitement from people on board i mean you you just can't you can't replace that it's 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 one of my favorite things to do and and you know politics can be pretty tough um from time to time and on a sunday on a lovely sunday in june when it's nice and calm to be out there in the water the last thing in my mind is is politics uh, and you're experiencing this incredible um natural phenomenon and I'd recommend anyone to get out there. People people go to New Zealand, they go to Alaska, they go to Hawaii to go whale watching. 
when right on our doorstep we have some of the most incredible species on the planet. So so let's bring you back to politics yeah, for great. a minute here. <laughs> you, you're clearly a keen nature lover. I don't think many people would think of Fianna Fáil as a, a party that's like been very proactive in nature and green issues. In fact, I was looking at, at their record when Bertie Ahern was Thishuk and the kind of radical environmental changes that he referred to under his watch that were successful were segregated recycling and the plastic bag tax, both of which were good, but like not really transforming society in the way we need to. So how do you reconcile this love of nature with representing a political party that hasn't really prioritised these issues? Um, well, I was, funnily enough, I was talking to Sean Hahi just this week, um, and Sean is Charlie Hahi's son. And uh, Sean had reminded me that uh, Charlie Hahi uh, was the Taoiseach of the time, uh, to designate um, Irish waters a whale and dolphin sanctuary, wow. okay, but it's that's like keen sailor too. Yeah, <laughs> that's one small step. And you, you you pointed it out there. Listen, it's not just Fianna Fáil. Successive governments for decades have um, pretty much, I think, avoided the issue of of climate action. Certainly, the issue of biodiversity and habitat loss has been way down the pecking order in terms of priorities. Um, so you know, there's there's no getting away from that. We can we can point out small steps that have been taken uh, over the past few decades. But it really is, it seems to be only no uh, that things are coming uh, to the fore. So how do I reconcile it? No, I like to think that maybe being in there and part of the party, I can be part of that sea change. Um, and I think it's there for anyone to see that that's starting to happen. I genuinely believe that we have uh, a Taoiseach who's uh, committed to both climate action and preventing biodiversity loss. In fact, I'm not sure he'll feel... He, uh, uh, appreciate me telling you this, but uh, the Taoiseach, when he goes on his walks around West Corks, Cork, he uh, he often sends me uh, images of butterfly species that he sees on his walks, uh, and he can name them as well. He can name the species, so you know peacock and red admiral, and so that's that's impressive. But listen, listen, it's this should this should have happened decades ago. This whole change in attitude should have happened decades ago. But I do firmly believe that it's there now. You know, the program for government um, has almost 300 commitments around environment and biodiversity. I thought the Taoiseach's contribution to COP26 was uh, very powerful. Um, we have had, since um, coming into government, we've passed the Climate Action um, Bill, uh, something that had never been done before, putting those targets uh, into law. Um, we've passed the Climate Action Plan. Uh, we've introduced the retrofitting scheme uh, just in the last couple of weeks. Um, around the biodiversity side of things, we have... Uh, the review of the MPWS has commenced and will be published soon, which is really important uh, because the MPWS has such an important role in protecting uh, habitats. Um, we have, thankfully, we got a commitment and a couple of weeks ago for a, a Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity, which will be um, sitting in April, I believe. So, I mean, there's, there's, and also the Wildlife Crime Investigation Unit, which, you know, since established, we've seen prosecutions uh, in terms of wildlife crime um increase significantly. Now, it's only been, um, uh, there's only one member of staff in that unit at the moment that clearly needs to increase so it can be, do its job effectively. So I think you're seeing just in, in a matter of two years, a complete attitude change, a sea change. And I really do feel like I'm a part of a, a party you now that has, you know, I suppose, woken up to the fact that, you know, we've had a discussion before, but there's no votes in, in biodiversity. I think that's that's changing uh, rapidly. I think people uh, do care. The pandemic played a part in that. People were going out and um, 
experiencing nature around them, submersing themselves in nature. And they care now. They care deeply. So, you know, it's... A lot of the the things that you've mentioned there, which are all great, were things that were in the Green Party's manifesto before they went into government. So there is an element of, obviously, the Green Party kind of influencing. What do you think is Fianna Fáil's priority when it comes to environment? What's the biggest challenge that Fianna Fáil is trying to tackle? And, and how do you see Fianna Fáil actually addressing that during their time in government? Yeah, and listen, the fact that we're in government and with the Greens, um, I think is incredibly exciting period and I'm certainly not trying to detract from their commitments clearly they they have um they they it's in their name no not that's not to say that none of those um items uh, or issues were part of Fianna Fáil policy they, they certainly were particularly around um reducing emissions and and climate action I think where Fianna Fáil can really strive to um excel and something that I hear members of my own parliamentary party TDs and senators talk about in a big way where they see big opportunity. And maybe this is because we're it, it's not just about reducing emissions, but also job creation. And that is the whole area of, of floating offshore wind. Um, and that is something that I know that, um, listen, I know the Green Party and Fianna Gael both have um, uh, high ambition when it comes to floating offshore wind. But certainly I see that within my own party. You and I are actually both quite passionate about seeing greenhouse gas emissions decline to address our international climate commitments. And and I've been struck a lot by the the fear that a lot of rural TDs have mentioned around trying to be, you know, climate brave, as they call it, but also potentially like alienating rural voters who, who maybe don't want these changes or they see these changes as potential economic hardships for them. How does someone like you in a rural constituency kind of manage those two competing interests? It's it's difficult, Cara, but it's becoming easier. And I'll explain why. Um, so it's difficult for uh, me to sell the idea of um, something like public transport in a place like West Cork, where you have peninsulas, you have this rugged landscape. We can, we, we're not going to have a Lewis or a Dart. Um, so the question will also often be asked by a rural voter, you know, it's all well and good investing in, in in public transport, but what does that mean for us? Um, and and then obviously you have the farming sector as well, who um, I think because of uh, the incorrect narrative for years um, have seen uh, climate action as as somewhat of a threat. But that's that is changing. And a couple of examples of how it's changing is when we recently announced the Connecting Ireland um, increase in bus routes, twenty five percent increase and. In, some of the mooted bus routes down in West Cork, where I'm from, um, you know, connecting towns that had never been connected by rural transport, connecting villages that had never been uh, connected by rural transport. The first kind of look at um, this every town, every village, every hour, it, it it was welcomed with open arms. And I think people are willing to embrace, uh, embrace that idea. And then around the farming and agricultural issue, which is often seen as a, a challenge. And again, the narrative is wrong. When... The microgeneration scheme, for example, was announced a number of weeks ago. My office uh, was overwhelmed with phone calls from the farming community saying, how can we avail of this microgeneration? How can we avail of solar panels uh, that we can install on our sheds and sell it back into the grid? So there's a massive desire there amongst everybody, not just urban dwellers, but rural dwellers, rural dwellers as well. I think what doesn't help is a narrative being put out there by some actors um, both within politics and outside politics, trying to hammer home this notion somehow that climate action and um, protecting habitat and protecting biodiversity is going to be the death knell of rural Ireland. And you'll often hear it said, uh, you know, I won't name any names, but, you know, that 
this government is out to decimate rural Ireland with its climate action and its its reducing of of emissions. Every you know, every time you turn on uh, exchanges in the dial, that's that's kind and of what's happening. And the carbon tax, of course. And the carbon <laughs> tax. So you know, which which are, which are all difficult, but um, necessary. And yeah, that that's that's kind of challenge. But I certainly there's this idea there that climate action and rural Ireland somehow don't um, mix. I absolutely dispute that, and I hope I've kind of illustrated that. Well, my thanks to Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan for coming on today to tell us about his eclectic green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Rousseau. And of course, thank you all for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcasts for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Something to ponder until next week. Do you find yourself nervous or scared about the climate crisis? Well, we'll be talking about the reality of climate anxiety and how to cope. But until then, stay curious. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows.